is Christine Maxfield, and you're listening to When in Rome from Compass Magazine. Today I have the great pleasure of interviewing one of my dearest friends in the business. He's a major fixture in the New York travel writing world. He hosts a popular monthly reading series called Restless Legs. He's a speaker at most large travel events around the area, and he teaches a travel writing course at New York University. Let's see what else. He's also a contributor to a far magazine and the New York Times, and is the author of An Irreverent Curiosity, which is being made into a documentary by National Geographic International as we speak. But he's also one of the most humble guys you'll ever meet. So who is this character with the wild hair and thick glasses? He's known simply as Farley, and we start off our conversation today by discussing his well-known nickname. It was the year 1999 when I finished graduate school and I got a job at kind of like a new city magazine in the Bay Area and I was an editor. That's how I became a writer. The person who was hired as editor-in-chief knew me and she just hired me as an editor. I had no experience at all because I studied history. Anyway, I was working there for a few months and overnight they hired like 17 new people and they were all named David. And so the first couple of times in the office when someone said, hey, David, and we all turned around, it was sort of amusing. And then after that, it became totally annoying. So finally, I was like, all right, from now on, I'm Farley. Call me Farley, please, because I'm tired of this. And then that's, everyone at work started calling me Farley, and somehow that spread to my social life. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, everyone was calling me Farley in my social life, and I kind of liked it. Yeah. And then I moved to New York, and as I was on my way here, I thought, I'm so used to being called Farley now. Should I continue introducing myself as Farley when I'm in New York to this whole new set of friends that I will have over my time in New York? And I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I thought, why not? So I did. I like and it. And so I'm just Farley now. Even my mom really? calls me Farley. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. The, most of the, the people who refuse to call me Farley are, usually are older people because they think it's disrespectful or something. Huh. Older people and Grant Martin, the editor-in-chief of God. No, really? Still calls me David. He, no matter, he knows, he knows it's been drilled into him, I'm Farley, but he's, that's his style, you know? Are you so. going to start putting that on your bylines? Not Just yet. Farley? Yeah. It, that had entered my mind one time, <laughs> but I probably would be gawkerized then. Because, you know, like Gawker picks up on people who have weird names. Mm. Like there's Jennifer Eight Lee, the New York Times journalist. Yeah. She was always, they were always like kind of making fun of her on Gawker, uh, anything she wrote, and it was just, and it was simply, if her name was Jennifer Lee, they probably wouldn't have noticed. Yeah. But because she was Jennifer, the number eight Lee. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, she totally, like, got gawkerized. And so I imagine if I, my byline appeared in the New York Times as Jess Farley, people would have been curious, like, who is this Farley? Who's this Farley yeah, character? It's, yeah, it's, so having one name is a slippery slope to eventually adopting an unpronounceable symbol as a name. But it's, I'm willing to take that chance. Right. So... All right, so let's talk about how you caught the travel bug in the first place. Mm-hmm. Why travel for you? Why travel? Because I grew up in the suburbs of Los Angeles. I came from a house that was largely Midwestern. My family's all from the Midwest. And no one in my house had any curiosity about the world or in, in my periphery, my friends, my neighbors. Nobody just cared about the outside world. Hmm. And for some reason I did, and I can't explain it why. I was born in Iowa, and I remember growing up in this in Dubuque, Iowa, which is famous for being a metaphor for Nowheresville. There was a hill, and I remember looking beyond the neighborhood to other houses and streets and seeing cars, and it sort of from a distance looked like the beginning of Miss Rogers' neighborhood. There was mm-hmm. a fake city. And I remember just dreaming of 
are wondering, having this wanderlust, I guess you could say, about what was beyond the hill over there. And I really wanted to find out. And so I just have a natural curiosity about what's beyond where I'm at. Hmm. Of course, if you are my therapist, you would wonder if I had escapism tendencies because I didn't feel right about what was going on in my house. So maybe my whole addiction to travel and my whole career as a travel writer can be boiled down to what was going on in my house when I was four or five years old. It's been good for you. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's been great. Yeah. It's been great. And so anyway, I didn't have a particularly great desire to travel until uh, my first year of college. And I went with my college to Europe, to Central Europe on a tour with a group of other students and a couple of professors. And uh, it was on that trip when I said to myself, my life, I want it to be that I'm going to be traveling all the time. I don't know what jobs there or careers there are out there where you can be traveling or where you can be living abroad would be great. Where you're just traveling all the time, where you're seeing new places, meeting people from other cultures and places and eating new foods. But that's what I wanted. And it wasn't until I was late 20s or 27, 28, when I had this epiphany that I maybe could be a travel writer. So how did you learn the craft? You studied history. How did you figure it out? Well, so in a way what happened though, I became a travel writer by accident also only because I was going out with a woman who was a writer and she always wanted to be a writer and she was working on a novel. And I thought just because of that, because all her friends were writers, I just decided maybe I should write. And she says that my 30 page history research papers in grad school are really well written. So maybe Hmm. I should try writing. And the things that I wanted to write about were, were the things that happened to me while I was traveling. For some reason, those things, if I had an experience walking to the store while I was traveling, it seemed intriguing to me. But if I had that same experience walking to the store from my home, I exoticized these experiences, I guess. So I started writing about those experiences and then getting them published. And then so soon enough, my stories were being published in the travel sections of newspapers. And so I was just sort of realized, oh, I guess guess I'm a travel writer. I guess that's what I'm going for because... These are the things that I want to write about. I teach travel writing at NYU, and I don't think that there were travel writing classes offered then in the late 90s. So I basically learned, one, from my mistakes about the craft, Mm -hmm. and two, I just, I read, I took a nonfiction writing class at UC Berkeley, which was helpful, and there was a workshop, and both the stories I workshop eventually got published, so it was very helpful. And then the second is I read a lot of books about writing, not travel writing books, because at the time, there weren't any really good books about travel writing. Now, Don George's Lonely Planet's public book, Travel Writing, is very good. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't out yet. And so I read On Writing Well by William Zinser, Mm -hmm. which is great. And a book by James B. Stewart, who is or was a New Yorker staff writer, and it's called Follow the Story. Hmm. And he takes three big feature stories that he wrote, magazine stories, and he annotates them. So the first chapter is the intro, and he drops the intro into the story, and then he tells you why he started off the story that way. And then the next paragraph is the nut graph. Yeah. And then he tells you, explains what a nut graph is, and then drops the nut graph into these stories, and then explains all about nut graphs, and then, and so on. He, the, as the title is, follow the story, you really follow his story from a writer's perspective until you get to the last chapter or conclusion. And so for me, by the time I finished that book, I was like, wow, I totally now understand how to write a magazine feature. And so none of these books were about travel, but they were just about journalism, mm-hmm. and they were super helpful to me to, to learn how to write. Interesting. So let's talk about your book, and I don't want to give too much away, so I want you to sum it up in your words, Mm -hmm. what your book is about. Holy genitalia. (laughs) Right. I moved to Italy to a medieval hill town near Rome 
that had been abandoned in the 60s and repopulated by hippies. And it intrigued me a lot, this town, because it's just filled with crazy hippies, fun people, very nice people, a little bit out there. And for centuries, there was a, in the church, there was a very unusual relic, a very prized relic. And it went missing in the 80s under mysterious circumstances. And so I tried to find out who took the relic. And I also then wrote about my search for this relic and also about my time living with these Italian hippies and so on. And the relic was interesting. It was the foreskin of Jesus. So, <laughs> I like so, how you stuttered it. <laughs> yeah. I know. I can't even utter <laughs> you it. You can't utter it. It shall not be uttered. Right. The holy foreskin. Mm-hmm. And so I did this sort of quest to find out who stole the holy foreskin. And in the process, I got myself into the Vatican Library, unearthed all these ancient documents dedicated to the foreskin, and in various chapters, I traced the history of the relic, too. So I wrote the history of this unusual relic, which has a very fascinating history. And I also wrote, alongside it in the book, a history of relics to put it into Mm -hmm. a historical context so you understand that this isn't necessarily something that people snickered at, like we do now, but it was very important. And so I tried to put that into a context so you understand the importance of this relic through history. Well, it still is very important. You explain that well in the book, no? Yeah, I mean, it's it's less important than it's ever been, in a way, because Which is the still Catholic Church, there, though, no? Well, yeah, the Catholic Church just to... doesn't have as much emphasis on relics anymore because I think they're sort of embarrassed by it, people praying to body parts and stuff. Well, you mentioned in your book that you could be excommunicated by writing about it. Yeah, in 1900, the Pope made a decree saying anyone who spoke about or wrote about the Holy Foreskin would face excommunication. So I, I was actually raised Catholic, and I have yet to receive my excommunication You're papers. You're waiting for so it. I wrote an entire book about it. <laughs> Come on, Ratzinger. Right. And there's a documentary possibly coming out about this. There is a documentary coming out. Not even possibly, it's coming out. I mean, it's, it's being made. It's being made, and there's funding behind it, and there's Werner Herzog's producers producing it, hmm. and there's a big TV channel in Europe that's already bought the rights to it. There's a big TV channel in North America that's already bought the rights to it. It's going to do the film festival circuit. And it should be exciting. We haven't started filming it yet, but it's due to be finished. It has to be finished as a deadline, the end of 2013. So I guess oh, that means great. it'll be out in 2014, next yeah. year. Have you been back to, how do you say, is it Calcutta? Calcutta, yeah. Have you been back since? Nope. So I'll have to go back to do the filming for like a month. And it should Are people be... going to come chasing after you? There are a few people There's there who locals. I think are not happy with the way they were portrayed in the book. Although I didn't portray them inaccurately. They just weren't happy with certain things and some of them are very sort of nitpicky but they took issue with it whatever so i'm sure i'll have to speak to these people again with a camera crew behind me and i'm sure they'll tell me on camera what they didn't like about my book Um, this is gonna be great it should be interesting (laughs) i think i have fairly thick skin but i have to grow some thicker skin before i land in at calcutta international airport if you figure um, that out tell me how to right do you believe that calcutta is uh, cursed hmm well, there are many curses that are associated with Calcutta, mostly because of the Holy Foreskin too, and which I wrote about in my book. And it's fascinating. Well, it's hard to answer this question only because through my research, I found that there were curses about Calcutta that, for example, there was a miracle associated when the Holy Foreskin was found in the village in 1557. Her name is Clarice. And there was a miracle that happened that was associated with her and the Holy Foreskin. And then she died. She was seven years old or something. She died a couple of years later. Mm-hmm. And according to legend, every girl 
that was named Clarice in the village never made it to her tween years. Huh. She died before she was 10 or 11 or something like that. And so this legend developed about the, the name Clarice that, you know, you don't name, if, you, if you're born in Calcutta, don't name your daughter Clarice because she'll die. And what happened is before abortion was legalized in Italy in the 70s, I think it was, women who had an unwanted pregnancy in Calcutta, they would tell themselves, <laughs> I'm going to name her Clarice. And they would miscarriage. I'm not joking. Locals told me this. The women would miscarriage. So they believed in this legend, this curse, so much that the curse would work on them. So, yes, there are curses in Calcutta. Because if you believe them, they're real. The interesting thing is I found a document in the Vatican Library that talked about this Clarice, this young girl. Well, it turns out she did not die when she was a young girl. She grew up to be a beautiful woman and married a man gave birth to children and moved to another town about 20 miles away, 20 miles closer to Rome. So there's this whole curse around this girl, mm-hmm. related to the Holy Foreskin, and it's all fake. But people believed it in their heads, so yeah. the curse was real. So to answer your question, yes, there are curses in Calcutta, but only because people believed in them so strongly that they, that they became self-fulfilling prophecies. Yeah, exactly. I want to find out, how did you even discover this relic? Are you um, a particularly religious guy? No, but I do have I do have some. I'm not religious at all, although I have some flirtations with Buddhism. But I'm always continually attracted to religion for some weird reason. I'm fascinated with it, hmm. and I love kind of crazy offbeat stuff. I have a master's degree in history, and so when I found out about this relic, which was in the year 2002, I was living in Rome for a few months. I took a day trip to Calcutta because I heard it's just this crazy town with Italian hippies and stuff like that. I found out about it then, and I was just, wow, this is really interesting to me, because it's just such a a kind of footnote to history. And when I started doing research on the history of it, I found that it it kind of existed around the periphery of so many historical movements. You know, you could you could talk about the French Revolution, and there's the Holy Foreskin there, because all the, cause there were lots of Holy Foreskins in France, that all everyone claiming to be the real foreskin of Jesus. Because the reason why it was important is because it's the only piece of flesh Christ could have left on earth after right. he ascended into heaven. So that's why it was so prized. And they all disappeared during the Reformation and the French Revolution, stuff like that. So you can look at these big historical epics, and there's some foreskin-related thing involving huh. it. So it just fascinated me. So one thing I really liked about writing about the, writing the book is that I could take this, what I thought was useless knowledge of 2,000 years of European history, and I could write the history of this relic and put it all into a historical context for each period, you know, like mm-hmm. the early Christianity, early medieval Europe, medieval Europe, Renaissance, Reformation, and, you know, early modern Europe, everything else that came after that, 19th century Romanticism, 20th century secularism, you can all place Holy Foreskin into these historical contexts, context I, <laughs> and and it, to me it was just fascinating, it was really fun to do. So, so yeah. will it give away the entire book if you tell me where you think the foreskin is? It's essentially, mm-hmm. you can't tell me, can you? I can't. I will tell you that I found out what happened to the relic. Okay. But what's in, one major constant criticism of my book from reviewers and from, but especially from reader reviewers, like on Amazon.com and Goodreads, an outside magazine reviewed my book and they gave it a very good review, but they said, they mentioned Farley's unsuccessful attempt to find the Holy Foreskin. And 
it was really interesting to me because I found it. I mean, I didn't yeah. get my fingers on the foreskin. Yeah. But I found out what happened to it. What part of the penultimate chapter did they not read? Right. Where I just where I where I mentioned that, and it was really fascinating. And, and I think it was an error on my part in the book. I didn't emphasize it enough or something. I don't know what it was, but an insider, a Vatican insider, told me he has very good sources. He knows what happened to it, and he told mm-hmm. me blah blah. And I relayed that in the book. And so, okay, that's what happened to the relic. And hmm. still, people put down the book and said. He never found the relic. Okay, yes, I didn't physically find the relic, yeah. but I, I, I did find out what happened to it. And to me, that was pretty good. That was good enough, I that thought. Was so I'm not going to say what happened to it, but I just want to say it was very unusual in the hmm. process of the book that people walked away, some people anyway, thinking something different than what really happened. Well, that wasn't my experience after putting down the book. Well, that's good. <laughs> So let's talk about some of the other stories that you gravitate towards. I mean, you're mm-hmm. going to India next week mm-hmm. to watch Untouchables do cremation services. I mean, yeah. this is uh, really interesting stuff. You really get into cultures. Tell me about this. So yeah, I, I'm just I'm fascinated with religion, and this is a sort of a religious story. It's a story about Hinduism mm-hmm. and about the end of life, and I'm fascinated with death, not in a macabre way, but just in a sort of philosophical way. I used to volunteer at a hospice as a friendly visitor to the dying, and people used to die on me. And when I was that? When I, I lived in Prague for three years, and then I and then I moved back to the states to go to grad school, and I had to live with my parents for six months in LA, and it was mm-hmm. during that time. I had nothing to do, so I just was like, I think I'll go hang out with dying people, right. as one does. Logical. Um, yeah. So I just I have this kind of fascination with with death, and I just I've I saw a documentary on these guys who. People the lowest caste in India, and it's their job in Varanasi to cremate bodies. Because to be to be to die in Varanasi and or to be cremated in Varanasi and then have your ashes floated down the Ganges gives you VIP access in the afterlife. You know, hmm. you you become Jay Z all of a sudden, right? If the Hindu afterlife or whatever, or you know, you it you actually you don't get reincarnated. I think is possibility you end up achieving sort of the Hindu version of Nirvana mm-hmm. and yet these guys of a very low caste are the cremators but they make a pretty good penny you know a lot of money actually because it's a it's a privilege to have this done to your relative and so they charge some money to have this done so that so they're they're of the lowest caste but I think they make some some good money doing this and so to me it just mm-hmm. fascinates me and I'm doing this for a far magazine and it's amazing to me that there's a magazine out there, and especially a travel magazine, that when I pitched them the story, I'm sure there were some detractors at the pitch meeting, but generally they were like, there was enough people that they were like, yes, that's this is really interesting, yeah. you know? This is a little glimpse into some subculture within mm-hmm. a subculture within a subculture that should be really fascinating. And I'm really honored that they trust me enough with this kind of sensitive subject mm-hmm. to pay for me to go there and pay me really like a decent amount of money for this story and so just really excited about doing it and to hang out with these guys and I'm gonna be around bodies being cremated every day and I'm like you know I just already can tell I'm gonna go back to my hotel like literally smelling like death because you know yeah you will it's gonna be interesting it'll be interesting Mm -hmm. I think it's beautiful actually because I was saying earlier that I saw that in Nepal and it's it's really it's beautiful I can't wait to read it do you know when it's slated to run Mm-mm. Not yet. Sometime at the end of 2013 or the early mm-hmm. early 2014, I think. All right. Well, when you're in town, keep an eye out for people messing with the holy cows. Supposedly, if a holy cow... Have you heard of this? If a no. holy cow is peeing, 
uh, locals will come up, run their hands under the stream, and sprinkle it all Shut over them. No, you've got to keep an eye out for it. But I what's the difference between a cow and a holy cow? They're all holy. Oh, okay. So just a cow. <laughs> just a cow, but right. they're holy cows. Right. All right. Are you ready for your Traveler's 10 questions? I am. All right. I'm probably not, but... Well, we'll do our best. <laughs> what travel book makes you want to pack your bags and hop on a plane? Actually, there's a book that I just finished, a novel. It's not really a travel book, but it's a novel. It's called Jeff in Venice, Death in Varanasi by Jeff Dyer, hmm. D-Y-E-R. And it's it's been mentioned that it's very veiled nonfiction. It's a, it's a novel, but it's really author Jeff Dyer is like really he went to Venice he went to Varanasi he ba- and the, the protagonist's name is Jeff it's basically like the author in these places and, and it's such a well-written book I love it hmm. so like I said it's a novel it's not a travel book but interestingly enough I started reading when I went to Venice earlier this year having no idea that in in six months I would go to Varanasi but now I'm off to Varanasi so huh. it's perfectly fitting but anyway I think he, he really captures a sense of place beautifully in both places so well that I'm excited that I'll have been in both of these places that the novel takes place in. Nice. What destination do you consider a best-kept secret? I think that, I don't have any like particular destination, but I think that like Italy is so rich in amazing little hill towns that are undiscovered by, by non-Italians or people outside of the region. For example, I took a train one time to, from Bari in southeastern Italy to Rome. And I remember just cruising through these valleys, and in the distance you can see hill towns way up there on a hill, and then there's another town over there, and there's another town, there's some massive Gothic cathedral sticking out of it or something. These towns, like, no one's heard of, Hmm. you know? And so I feel like Italy is just filled with awesome towns that no one knows because everyone goes from Venice to Florence to Rome, Uh and that's pretty much it. Some people get down to Naples so they can go to Pompeii or whatever. But, and then some people stop at towns in between all these places. But then in between this, what is almost like a diagonal line going from the northeast to southwest, right? Venice, Florence, Rome, Naples. There's all this other stuff in Italy that's amazing. I mean, even Bologna isn't really a secret. Not everyone goes to Bologna, but Bologna is yeah. like an amazing town. I love Bologna. It's maybe one of my favorite big cities in Italy. Interesting. What site should be seen at least once in a lifetime and why? A site? One site? It could be anything? Could be anything. Well, I think anyone should go to, everyone needs to go to Paris. Mm -hmm. You have to go to Paris. Yeah. You just have to. Yes. You have to. You have to know Paris. You have to spend like a week in Paris and know Paris. There's so many references to Paris. There's so much Paris is all over literature of the last 500 years. And I just think it's really important. If you're, if you consider yourself an educated person. Yeah. Go to Paris. You have to, to complete that education. You have to go to Paris. I like that. What and where was the most memorable meal you've had while traveling? Now, you're a foodie. This is going to be hard for you. But you've got to pick the best meal, Um, what it is and why it was the most memorable. Okay. I was in Vietnam a couple years ago, and I was staying with a friend in Saigon, and he was working, and his Singaporean girlfriend and I went out just walking around, and she speaks a little Vietnamese, and... We went down in Vietnam. There's just, have you been? No. There's just, you walk down like an alleyway and it's just like flanked with little makeshift sort of eateries. Okay. You sit on these plastic chairs that in where we're from are made for children because they're really small and they're low to the ground. For me, I sit down in them and then when I stand up, they stick to my waist. <laughs> but you sit in these little plastic chairs and you eat whatever they're serving. And so we just walked up to one. This woman was stirring a big cauldron 
and my friend's girlfriend said, what's that? And the woman said something in Vietnamese that Constance didn't understand. And I said, what is it? She said, I don't, I don't know this word. I was like, well, let's get it anyway. It's like a white soup. And so we got it. We sat down. It was amazing. It was just creamy and delicious and savory. And it was so amazing. And then we couldn't figure out what it was, actually. And then when we got home, she looked it up in her dictionary, and it was bone marrow soup. See, I knew it was going to be really? something. Yeah. It was, it was amazing. <laughs> I mean, I think you could probably, in New York City, you could probably find bone marrow soup somewhere on a menu. There are 20,000 restaurants here. But, you you know, you take a while to find it. But this was amazing, like bone marrow soup. I'd never thought of bone marrow soup before, and it was so great. You need to learn how to make that. Yeah. You should. I should. What was your most nerve-wracking experience on the road, and how do you think other travelers could avoid it? Well, my most nerve-wracking experience on the road was also in Vietnam, but another trip that I had... 12 hours to get to Saigon from Nha Trang in central Vietnam on the coast. And I took a taxi out to the airport and my flight was canceled because of the weather. And I had to get back to Saigon to get my flight home. And it was nerve wracking trying to figure out how I was going to get to Saigon in 12 hours. Mm -hmm. My flight was at 6 a.m. And I took a cab back into town. Train station was just packed with people. Some dwarf took me in and like helped me. It was amazing. It was like butted me to the front of the line and was speaking Vietnamese for me. And like, she got me on a train and I got into Saigon 45 minutes before my flight was going to leave. And then took a cab to the airport, got to the airport, just jumped on the plane just where they're going to close the doors. And I made it. Nice. And it was, it was really nerve wracking. Cause like I had to sit through this overnight train wondering if I was going to make it or not. Yeah, of course, if I didn't make the flight, it wouldn't be in the world. I would have survived, but still I, I really wanted to get home. I was yeah. I'd been on the road a while and I just really wanted to make this flight. So it was incredibly nerve-wracking. But to the second part of your question, there's nothing anyone right. can do to have prevented that because yeah. the airline just called it at the last second. So huh. so it's not a very satisfying answer for you probably. But still, it was very nerve-wracking. What passport stamp still eludes you? Thailand. Really? Yes. Everyone's been to Thailand except for me. Well, I've I, never I been. haven't. I've been to Cambodia. I didn't All go right. over the yeah, border. Yeah, Thailand is like the, the good entry place for for Southeast Asia, you know? Yeah. And then you go to the more challenging sort of places. Yeah. Um, I've been to Burma, I've been to Vietnam a few times, but I've never been to like Cambodia, Laos, or really? the easy one, Thailand. Oh. And it's crazy. I love Thai food. Thai culture seems amazing. Thai people seem great. I'm, you know, I'm interested in Buddhism and it's a Buddhist country. Mm-hmm. And I just can't believe I haven't been there yet. So I can't either. Yes. Visit Cambodia while you do that too. I will. Okay. What is your most cherished souvenir and why? My most cherished souvenir. I have a shard of Etruscan pottery that's 2,500 years old that I smuggled into the country. What? How did you um, do this? It was when I was living in <laughs> Calcutta, and I was leaving, and someone from Calcutta just gave it to me. And I was really nervous coming back because, like, you know, there's this, like, you can't smuggle artistic treasures out of a country, mm-hmm. right? You'll be arrested yeah. and, like, drawn and quartered. And so a shard of pottery is hardly an artistic treasure, but it's a 2,500-year-old shot of pottery that had painting on the outside of it and I was I was a little bit nervous about it but I still have it so I would say that maybe yeah I did the same actually oh, yeah? from Petra I was really nervous hoarding cultural hoarding I, I was um, but it's just all over the place that doesn't make it right but still wow I did 
And everybody else was doing it right in front of security and everything. Really? It shows security was doing it as well, yeah. But I know. But I'll tell you what, I did find a metal tool, and I did turn that in to the university, and it's on display now. So I did not smuggle. What university? uh, In the capital, what's that, Amman? Oh, right. Yeah. Hmm. So so there you go. I didn't, I wasn't that bad. Hmm. I was bad. I wasn't that bad. Hmm. What's the most interesting custom or tradition you discovered abroad, and did you bring it back home? So this also goes back to Italy. One thing I just made last night, actually, I made arugula pesto Hmm. with almonds. I saw this on Facebook. Oh, no, I made kale pesto. Oh, that's what I saw. Okay. Yeah. I'm kind of going through this phase. I just bought a new blender, so I think I'm... Oh, okay. Anyway, before that, though, before I moved to Italy, you know, there weren't microwaves there. There's not as much processed food. I was making... I started... And also, my friend Pancho in Calcutta ran a restaurant there, Mm -hmm. and he was a very big advocate of just making everything from scratch. Mm -hmm. And I came from a culture, came from a household in which you could cut corners very easily by going to the store and buying something that was already made, like a jar of pesto, Mm -hmm. for example. And one thing I learned, a custom I learned in Italy, was making stuff from scratch. Like, pesto is incredibly easy to make. And it's so much better when you make it yourself, because you can determine what goes in it, you know? Yeah. Last night I made arugula pesto. You can't go to the store and make buy a jar of arugula pesto. You have to make that shit yourself. Yeah. And kale pesto I made last week. And so one, that's one custom that I've brought back from Italy with me, is cooking and doing it sort of the right way. You know, like I'm... A lot of times I make gnocchi now from scratch. And I don't buy pre-packaged gnocchi, stuff like that. That's actually so. hard to do, to roll that. Yeah, it is. It is. I've tried. Mm-hmm. I don't do well. Right. Is that when you started to become a foodie? No. 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 You've but maybe, it's, it. maybe it brought me to the next annoying mm-hmm. level of foodie. <laughs> What's your biggest piece of advice for aspiring travelers? My biggest piece of advice is to let travel change you because my mm-hmm. feeling about travel is that you know there's all these maxims about travel and how much it changes you and how much it makes you like a better person and a more open-minded person but there are a lot of ignorant racist people who travel also yeah and they don't become more open-minded yeah they're still like idiots and i think that travel will only change you if you let it change you mm-hmm. and so my advice is to let to be to just open your mind and yourself to the to the big wide world and let whatever comes at you, take it in and let it affect you and let it change you. I like that. And what's the most profound lesson you've learned around the world? The most prof- profound lesson, I guess, is that this isn't really a profound lesson, I would say, but it's a lesson in and of itself. I used to be really hard on the country in which I come from, the United States of America. Yeah and its citizens, especially when people acted abroad the way that I didn't really think you should act abroad. And one thing that I've learned from traveling so much is that it's not just Americans who are doing this stuff. It's every country has Hmm. its assholes. And it's a human thing. There are people who are polite and diplomatic and considerate, and there are assholes who don't care. And it's not just people who come from America, which I was being very hard on and being more Mm -hmm. critical of because maybe I share the same passport as them. But every country has its people who are going to misrepresent their country yeah. when they're traveling. Yeah. And we just try our best not to do it ourselves. Mm-hmm. So off of the question list, how did you get the nickname C-Max for me? I have a proclivity for nicknames, for nicknaming. Yeah. That's one thing that George Bush and I have in common. Apparently, George W. Bush is a big nicknamer, too. Huh. It's the only thing we have in common, except that we both breathe and eat and... 
Are, are male. Yes, and are okay. males. I don't know. It's a term of endearment. When I give someone a nickname, it means that I like you, actually. Aww. So, you know, I don't know. Sometimes the first letter of someone's name combined with the first three letters of their last name sounds particularly good. Mm-hmm. And so C-Max is like kind of awesome, actually. So I couldn't resist. I feel very honored. You should be. Thank you, Farley. <laughs> Farley has always been a huge supporter of all of my travel writing ventures, so let's make sure to support him now as he's currently in Italy filming his new documentary. Keep an eye out for that sometime in 2014 on National Geographic International, and also follow him online at dfarley.com or on Twitter at David Farley. You should also try to attend one of his fun Restless Lakes reading series, where you might even run into me. So check the next date by searching for the Restless Lakes group on Facebook, and hopefully I'll see you there. So good luck, Farley. And until next time, get out there and set the world on fire.